let's go to our text tonight. I'll read it and then we will begin our, our exposition and our study. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> Paul writes this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, so to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. May God bless us as the word of God is expanded. What we're going to see is that this is not just a discussion about eschatology or when we say eschatology, what we mean is study of the last things. That is the, the last things on the Christian calendar or the whole universe's calendar of Jesus coming back, judgment, and then the new heavens and the earth. All right, all of that is called eschatology, uh, coming from the Greek word meaning last and then ology being study. So we're going to get into that a bit, but I want you to see that this takes place in a context. But for Paul, he's writing to the Thessalonians, having heard from Timothy after many months being separated from them quickly. He misses them. He sends Timothy up to check on them. Timothy comes back with an amazing report. They're going well. They're growing. They're, they're reading the word. They're studying the word. They're, they're evangelizing. They're living in holiness. They're being persecuted, but persevering. All of this. But then Paul also hears of a couple of things of concern. Last couple of weeks, we established that uh, that they were living holy lives, but Paul needed to drive home the necessity of the urgency around the topic of sexual immorality. He, he did that. Uh, then last week we saw that, that he had also heard that there are some people who are refusing to work because they're above that for some reason, and they're just taking the, the handouts of the church, stealing, in essence, from those people who are working for themselves. And so he, he commanded them to work hard with their own hands, mind their own business. But this week, he, he's also dealing with another problem. And that's a problem that has come up because of their views of the end times. You've got to know, as a Christian, if you have strange views of the end times, it affects your life. Theology matters. Bad theology hurts people. Bad theology leads to uh, uh, a, a bad view of the world. Uh, uh, it, it destroys Christian obedience. Theology informs Christians so that we can obey, rightly glorify God. Paul starts out here by saying, I want you to be good theologians. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed. He believes that the best church is an informed church, not a church that will agree on every specific detail of biblical interpretation. That's a given. That's, that's the case here. But he wants a people who is informed. The pastor's job is to be a pastor teacher, a, a leader shepherder and a teacher of the word of God. So I'm going to take up a, 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 a page out of Paul's book here and uh, be, I don't want you to be uninformed about eschatological matters because otherwise you go to YouTube 
type in end times and you're just scared to get a credit card or use a pay ID because that's the mark of the beast and, and you know, or this president's this and this front. No, we'll, we'll, we'll clear that around uh, 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 tonight. <clears throat> Nonetheless, for the Thessalonians, what had happened was they had been preached to by Paul saying, the coming of the Lord Jesus is at hand. He is at the door. He'll come back at any point and we need to be ready. And they had taken that truth and somewhat maybe twisted it because there was people giving false prophecies or maybe simply because they were misapplying that. Some people were saying, well, if he's coming back tomorrow, I'm not going to go get a job. I'll just do nothing. That was last week. But then other people are saying, if Jesus is coming back to bring the Christians with him into heaven, into glory and all that that entails, that means that those who have died, who are Christians, have missed out, doesn't it? This was their worry, that those who were Christians, believing, waiting for Jesus from heaven, they passed into the grave, and so they won't be around when he comes back. He won't take them with him. There's a problem to them. And then next week, we're going to uh, look at in chapter 5, 1 through 11, he's going to address the problem, the second problem of, if Jesus is coming back, is it possible for Christians to miss the day? Is it going to be possible to look around and realize all the other Christians are gone, I'm left, I didn't set my alarm, I didn't do something, I didn't say the right words, whatever it is, I'm not in heaven, Jesus come back and judge the world and I'm left here like you're at a train station and you've missed your train. He's going to ask, ask and answer that next week. But this week is all about what happens, how should we think about those who have died and, got, uh, and will they miss the coming of Jesus? Now, <clears throat> Let, let's talk a little bit of eschatology. When we talk about eschatology, there are some, some necessary things that every Christian ought to believe. This is what we call primary matters, okay? Or we, we, we use the language of close-handed issues. These are issues that we hold with a firm grasp. We don't let go of. Those include the, the divinity of Christ, the sinfulness of man, the truth of the word of God, Jesus dying for us, a penal substitution, his bodily resurrection, that he is now in heaven. Salvation is by faith alone, that he's coming back to judge us and there will be a future eternal state. But those things are core, close-handed. We never, we debate them to defend those things. We are not okay if people in church call themselves Christians and deny those things. But then there are a lot more specific and what we'll call secondary matters, which we hold with an open hand. We can believe them. Each of us should have a view about this. The Bible will talk to all sorts of things, but we hold them with an open hand so that if you don't believe the same as me, you're not out of the kingdom. Okay, so these will be things like your view on baptism, uh, your view on, on one-man-led churches or multiple elder-led churches, uh, your views maybe on whether women can be pastors, uh, your views on things uh, th that, that happened at the beginning of the world uh, in Genesis account. Was that over millions of years or six literal days? Now, we should take all of these things seriously, but not throw each other out of the church because we, we, we differ. Now, then there are, uh, you know, some of those things will in fact be tertiary, third level things that really don't affect your life all that much. And we'll, you know, get, uh, uh, we, we like to debate because that's just Christians. We care about truth. But, but really primary, secondary issues. In eschatology, there are some primary things that you must believe in order to call yourself a biblical, historical Christian. Those things are the following. <clears throat> this is what all Christians agree on. That when we talk about the coming of Jesus at the end of the world, 
We are talking about a sudden, personal appearance of Jesus. We don't believe that Jesus is just going to come back spiritually through, through the love of the world. So wear flowers on your shirt. And, and when that happens, when you feel the warmth in your heart, that's Jesus coming back. And it's not actually going to happen or affect anything in history. It's just all the spiritual thing. No, that's not true. It's also not true that Jesus is going to come back, appear to some people, Paul, right? JWs teach this. He came back, appears to some, spiritually appears to others, and then the rest of us are just going to wait until he comes back for the rest of us, okay? Uh, that's not the case. It's universal. It's sudden. It's not over decades. It's a sudden appearing, and it's personal. It is Jesus himself. He doesn't send Michael the archangel for us. He doesn't send some, some prophet coming out of Kansas City or, you know, to come and tell you that he is the Messiah, come to bring you to heaven. No. When we talk about eschatology, many, many, many cults have been born out of texts like we just read. But nonetheless, uh, we, we must believe, all Christians historically have believed, we should believe, the coming of Jesus will be sudden, personal, and for everybody at once. Also, we believe uh, that, that we, as Christians, should eagerly desire that. We should be those who are waiting for it with anticipation and hope. Uh, Titus, in chapter 2, says this. He, he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's the Christian life. And, oh, sorry, while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So the Christian should have a view of a view of eschatology that you are eagerly waiting the, the return of Jesus. This is a positive event. You want it to happen. Your whole life is lived in light of that day. Furthermore, we believe that it is at an unknown time. Jesus would say this often, that no man knows the day or the hour of my appearing. Therefore, a bit of application, ignore any person who tells you they figured it out every year. There are more and more books written about, about the time of Jesus coming back. It's going to be this month in this year. There'll be these moon occurrences. There'll be this president. There'll be this invention. I'm telling you, it's coming, right? This is, this is called false prophecy. We, did, we reject those people. They're, they're, they're very popular in Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, all sorts of cults like that. We, we push them aside. We don't listen to them whatsoever. You can control people a great deal with their money. In fact, people have even been led to commit mass suicide because they believe this guy knows Jesus is coming back and therefore he can tell us all sorts of things. We don't know. What we also hold firmly is the end result of everything. So our creeds, the, the Apostles' Creed, right, written very early, uh, the, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, they will all include in the basic uh, beliefs of Christianity that Jesus resurrected, ascended to heaven, and from there he will come one day to judge the living and the dead. The unrighteous will be condemned. The righteous in Christ will be brought 
into eternal glory. Those things are all close-handed issues. Anybody tries to teach you that those things that we've just discussed are not true, we have to reject them, point them back to the Bible, and you know should know Scripture in order to do that. But as we talk about all of those things happening, there's lots of debate. When do certain things on the timeline that the Bible gives us, when do those things occur? Are some of those things already happened and a couple of things for the future or is everything currently happening in the world now over a long period of time or is it all future there's everything the bible talks about is going to happen in quick succession at the end of the time uh there will be here's just four events that the bible says must happen before the end of the world comes before jesus comes back to wrap up history here's what has to happen At least the preaching of the gospel to all people. Mark 13 uh, tells us this in in verse 10. Uh, I've only got three tabs here, so I can't, didn't keep them all. I have to, you give me some grace as I scroll. Mark 13, verse 10, Jesus said, The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Uh, There you go. That's, and I'm not going to read the rest because it's an enormous, enormous paragraph. So, but that's what he was saying. The gospel has to first be preached to all nations, then the end can come. Until that happens, the end can't come. Therefore, as Christians, we believe the gospel, however you interpret that, has to be preached to the end, uh, to all the world or all the nations, all the people groups, all the lands in order for Jesus to come back. Even more. Hang on, where am I? <clears throat> Next, we have to believe that the tribulation happens before Jesus comes back. The tribulation is, is, now this will be interpreted differently, but it is a time of intense persecution against Christians and suffering in the world as evil triumphs and God judges the world, pouring out his wrath in different uh, 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 waves, if you will. So that has to happen before Jesus comes back. However you interpret scripture, you have to have that in your interpretation. Nextly, 2 Thessalonians. So so Paul doesn't clarify everything about eschatology in this letter. He actually has to write again. That seems to be the main reason he writes. His next letter is to clarify these things. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says that the end cannot come. Jesus cannot return until chapter... uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter that appears to come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. He says, For that day will not come until the rebellion and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So, Whatever your interpretation of Scripture, you have to believe the man of lawlessness, this leader of unrighteousness, persecution against the church, has to come, be risen to power, and then fall down or uh, in some, uh, to some degree before Jesus returns. That has to happen. And the fourth thing that has to happen before Jesus returns is that Israel, ethnic Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, who who still have the promises of God today, they will have some kind of revival or renewal or awakening. 
but ethnic, not spiritual Jews like you and me now, but actual blood-born Jews will have some kind of revival amongst their people, and then the end will come. That's told to us uh, in many places, but Romans 11 is a clear description of that. Now, how does that all fit together? I'm sure as I said those words, you've got pictures flying around that, that you've looked up or you've learned in the past or you've heard from uh, maybe a crazy neighbor or a conspiracy theorist and you've heard these things. I remember I was in high school. I, I knew a guy, I'm not going to call him a mate, I knew a guy who claimed to be the man of lawlessness. There you go, in, in Ipswich. That's, that's, that part makes sense. The rest I couldn't uh, quite put my, put my finger to finger on but nonetheless so we need to know right where do all these things fit there are three main views of eschatology let me give them to you they are amillennialism postmillennialism and premillennialism premillennialism can be sort of divided up into historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. I see you all writing these down. Uh, premillennialism, historic and, and dispensational, and, and they have some slight differences. But ultimately, they all define themselves according to the Revelation 20 millennium, meaning a thousand years. Revelation 20 tells us that Jesus will come and establish a kingdom and it will last a thousand years where he will reign with a rod of iron and rule the world. Amillennialism says that that reign is currently happening in heaven. The millennium does not exist. It's not a thousand year period between Jesus' ascension and his return. There's no such thing as a period. It's simply the whole church age. From Jesus going up to heaven to his coming back, that is Christ's reign in glory. And therefore, all that you read in Revelation, most of that book and, and uh, is being uh, 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 worked out over church history. And there'll be some, you know, some differences in how certain people will explain it. Of course, uh, no one will really have the exact same eschatology as any other person. Uh, so, so I'm, I'm going to talk in broad terms. But they believe, so of talking about the four events we just said, uh, the preaching of the gospel to all peoples, they believe is, is symbolic basically of the gospel going around the world. That'll happen in the time of Jesus being in heaven before he comes back. Uh, they will say that the tribulation is something that will happen in, in some kind of, maybe it's future, but probably it's just the whole time of, uh, of church histories that there's opposition to and attacks on, church, uh, on the church. So that's the tribulation. That's happening before Jesus comes back. And when they talk about the man of sin, they will they, usually they will uh, identify a key uh, person in history and all at least a symbolic person. Many amillennialists will point to the Catholic Pope. Not one man forever, but an over-occurring office and say, that role, the Pope, is the head of evil in the world. Don't disagree with that. Leading an, an assault on true Christianity. True. They are doing that, and therefore they, they identify the Pope as the man of sin. So Jesus can come back, destroy uh, the works of the evil one and the man of sin has been in power. And then they will say that the salvation of Israel has in some way already happened because a lot of Jews are Christians 
right? Especially in the first century, less so now, but nonetheless, some Jews are saved so they can say that it's happened or it's future at some point. There probably will be a big revival. They're not too caught up on it. You know, there's differences. Now, some guys who believe this, okay, some popular teachers are such men as uh, probably you can throw Augustine in there, one of the church fathers, St. Augustine. He probably believed that, it, it seems. He didn't have all these arguments around in his day, but he seemed to present that idea. Uh, Gerhardus Voss, a Swiss theologian, uh, sorry, a Dutch theologian. Uh, you might know him from uh, his systematic theology. Uh, a little bit more, free, uh, more recent is uh, Louis Burkhoff. Uh, he's a Swiss theologian. You might know him from his systematic theologies. Everyone's nodding at that. Yeah, we love Burkhoff. Uh, uh, or maybe more recently, uh, R.C. Sproul, for some part of his life, was an amillennialist. Uh, and Sam Storms is another modern-day person. So they're the sort of guys you might read, follow on this topic if you are an amillennialist. Let's go to the next one. That's amillennialism. There's no real thousand years. Postmillennialism is that view of the kingdom of Jesus, which says that Jesus comes back. Now, that word post means after. Post-millennial. So the question is, when does Jesus return? The answer for post-millennials is after the millennium. That the millennium is not a literal thousand years, but it's a true period of Jesus from heaven reigning. Now you might say, post-mill, a-mill sound the exact same. Let me show you the difference. Post-mills believe, that's my shortened version, post-mill. I will trip over that word a lot less. Uh, post-mills believe that while Jesus is ruling in heaven, his reign as king is affecting world history. That you can look over the span of time and see from the beginning of Christianity to now, there has been a, a growth of Christianity that Jesus is fighting for his people, spreading his gospel, establishing his kingdom over the world. And then we can look into the future and say, that will just keep on spreading. We'll look at Daniel prophecies when he says the stone comes, lands on the ground, smashes the other kingdoms and just grows into a mountain until it envelops the whole world. That's a post-millennial view. The kingdom of Jesus, as the preaching of the gospel happens, extends over the whole world. And many post-millennialists believe that in the future, we can expect there will be a day that the majority of human beings on earth are Christian. And it is an age of, of, of glory that there will be no wars. There will be righteous kingdoms. And the only war going on is everybody arguing about whether or not they're in the kingdom, right? Whether or not they're in the millennium, because we'll be arguing about that until Jesus comes back. That was a joke. <laughs> you don't get it. Don't get it. it was a smart person joke, apparently. <laughs> no. So uh, the, where was I? You laughed at my, you didn't laugh at my joke, I'm thrown off. Uh, so the four events. Okay, so for the post-millennials, you might say, well, when do they believe the tribulation? I mean, if it's all getting better, when's the tribulation happen? When does the man of sin rise up? For post-millennialists, they believe that much of what the Bible prophesied, which was in the future for the people in the, in, it was in the future for the apostles, is in fact in our past. That the tribulation was actually promises to the city of Jerusalem where Rome would come and be God's agent of pouring out God's wrath against the unfaithful old covenant believers, setting up a new age of the church. The tribulation is past. 
And you might say, but it sounds future in the Bible. It was future for them, but it happened between them and us, so a post-mill would say. They would also say that the preaching of the nation to all, uh, so the preaching of the Gospels to all nations, either those lang- that language can be interpreted differently to mean that gospel would be preached to all areas, which was fulfilled in the first century through Paul, and then the tribulation and judgment came on Jerusalem. Or others say that it's currently happening, the gospel will go out, spread all over the world, and, and that text is fulfilled there. And then you say, well, what about the man of sin? He's not the, cat, the, the Pope. He seemed to fit pretty well. Who is he? Well, the man of sin is Emperor Nero. The, that, that Roman ruler who was the one who was persecuting the Christians so intensely, burning them on crosses, uh, offering up uh, 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 sacrifices in, in the Jew, uh, in the sorry, that came later, uh, uh, but, but burning Christians in his house, eating people alive, Nero did. He was a beast. And so some say he's the revelation beast who Jesus destroyed when he, uh, uh, after he had fulfilled God's purposes for him. And therefore, they don't see that there's a future reigning man of sin to bring down the tribulation. That, that makes sense? And then they believe that the salvation of Israel, uh, some believe it's already happened like the Amos believe, or others believe that in the future, as the gospel spreads, it goes full circle back around to God's Old Testament covenant people, that they are in large, saved, and we together, Gentiles and Jews, reign with Christ on the earth. Now, let's, now, if you read those guys, if you're one of those, you will read such men as Kenneth, Kenneth Gentry, Doug Wilson and Jeff Durbin over in America, currently alive. Uh, a little bit older, B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge. These guys were systematic theologians. Or the missionary Adoniram Judson, uh, also Jonathan Edwards. They ha- held this view. Or at another part of his life, R.C. Sproul. So I'm an emails and postmills love to argue who, who was right with R.C. Sproul because uh, that's really what matters. <clears throat> Nonetheless, so let's keep on going. This is Emil, post-mill. Now this is all going to make sense when we start hitting the text. <clears throat> post-mill and pre-mill. In the pre-millennial worldview, they believe, so the question is, when does Jesus come back? They say pre, before, the millennium. Jesus comes back into a world that is in tumultuous warfare, that is opposing the church, that the blood of the martyrs is being spread, that they cry out for justice. Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom in this world. The millennium, in their view, is probably a literal thousand years, and it's future. Jesus will come back, and so they say tribulation happens in the future to us. It will start with a seven, it, they say, seven years of God pouring out wrath on this world. Uh, there being great persecution of the righteous uh, and, 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 and the world in warfare against God. But at the end of that, Jesus comes, sets up his kingdom and rules on a literal throne in literal Jerusalem over the whole world. There is a literal theocracy in the future, a Christian world ruled by King Jesus. That's what they, they believe. So I've, I've placed the, the tribulation there somewhere. <clears throat> Let me then also say they believe that the, uh, uh, what, what's the other one we need? Oh yeah, the, the preaching of the gospel. They, they believe that, that that won't happen. The tribulation won't 
start and Jesus won't come back until the gospel goes all throughout the world and people believe from all nations, although, like we said, different people will, will hold to different versions of this. They believe especially that 1 Thessalonians 4, there you go, that's us tonight, that this text about Jesus coming, crying out a command and bringing his people to himself is speaking of a rapture. That, that is future, that is yet to come, but doesn't happen at the very end of the world. It happens before the kingdom. That Jesus comes, brings his people to himself. They, they disappear for, for a time and then come back uh, to rule on the earth. Such men who hold this are blokes like uh, Walter Martin, uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, these are guys from the, the early church, and John Piper. But then there's another version of this premillennial view. And what they will say is that this is called the dispensational premillennial view held by men such as Norman Geisler, Chuck Swindoll, John MacArthur, Steve Lawson. Okay, they believe that the church age happens. Jesus raptures up. Man, there's a lot of words tonight. Thank you for being engaged here. Jesus raptures up into heaven all of his Christians on earth that begins the, the, the tribulation period where he, God's people are with him in heaven. The world goes to hell, being judged by God on the earth. Israel becomes a Christian nation, and then Jesus comes back at the end of that, and it's, it's quite similar to the historical pre-mill, as we said before. So here's the, that's, that's the views. They're, they're, the, they're the, uh, uh, the three major schools of thought out there in eschatology. And I'll, I'll say with you, I'm just trying to be like Paul. I don't want you to be uninformed. When you're uninformed, you seek to be informed by, un, uh, by, by anyone who will give you answers. And, and the simple fact is that, that the fools out there, the devil seems to have the monopoly on the internet. So you go out there and, and God uses, uh, uh, many of us here know this, that God will use the internet to give you great resources, church locations and, and whatnot you can learn. But it's also a rich area for deception, for ruining people's faith, for uh, discouragement and uh, great foolishness. So here is uh, the text before us tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. How are we to interpret this considering eschatology? I want to remind that this is all, whichever school of thought you, believe, you belong in, in any one of those, it is a secondary issue. Which do you, do you have to be an A-mill, a post-mill, or a pre-mill to belong to Hope Church? Yes. You, you can believe any of those and you can belong here in the family. We don't hold a certain one that all members are conformed to or all people are demanded to believe. The door is open. Come on in. You can be a member and hold to different views. What we do hold is that we do not cause division on this topic, that this does not become something to deride or degrade other Christians on or other churches on. We hold this open-handed and therefore you are willing, like the great late R.C. Sproul, to change your views, to study more and come to different conclusions. Nonetheless, the Thessalonians, like us, are confused about eschaton, about eschatology and what's going to happen at the end. So, so I'm going to read verse 14 through 16, and we'll comment on it. Verse 14. 
Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So, so here's what Paul wants to say. This is, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is talking about the same event that, or, or, or the same day period as 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about. The final trumpet, the end of time, the resurrection of the dead and judgment is going to happen. This is not something that will happen uh, decades away from the end, but at the very end. We need to see that he is giving this as a theology of encouragement. Because while they were, you, you remember what their problem was, I'm a dead friends, relatives, going to have see Jesus come back, partake in the resurrection at all, Paul is telling them, when Jesus comes back, he will bring the, this is what happens. He, let me, let, sorry, let me speak to this first. He calls the dead in Christ. What does, he, what does he say? I want you to see it in verse 13 and verse 14. What word does he use to describe those who are dead? Asleep. Very good. Asleep. Now, some people take this and say, well, what? This is soul sleep. In other words, Christians die, you sleep in the ground, your soul is, is sort of in a coma, and then when Jesus comes back, you wake up like the world's greatest alarm system. Holla, I need one of those for me some mornings. Jesus comes back, that's what, that's what some will hold. Calvin's first famous writing, his book was called Against Soul Sleep in 1552. And it made the case that we believe, that, that I will teach, in, here at Hope Reformed Baptist Church, we hold soul sleep is unbiblical. When you die, Christian, you go straight to be with Jesus. There's no waiting unnecessary until Jesus uh, 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 comes back. We will read this in such places as um, 2 Corinthians 5.8. I'll, I'll read that for you. Paul says very conclusively, uh, he says... <clears throat> Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body. What's it called when you separate from your body? Death. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He's making those two things the same event. When, as soon as I'm out of this body, I'm at home with the Lord. Friend, this world is not your home. This body is not your eternal dwelling. So Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5.8. Also, you'll recall Jesus saying to the sinner dying to him on the cross who was placed in faith, his faith in Christ, Jesus said, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' soul, just like our souls, separates from our body, goes straight to heaven. Paul also mentions this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. He's talking again about how much he desires to separate from this body and go be with Jesus. A man suffering enormous persecution, uh, great struggles and trials. He says, I just want to go home. He says in verse 21, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
Why can he say that? Because if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, I shall choose, I cannot tell. He's, I, I don't know what I'd rather. Working for Jesus and preaching his gospel or being with him. Well, luckily, it wasn't up to Paul. He labored while he lived. Yet 23 says this, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And we're glad he stuck around. Paul teaches, you die, you're with Jesus. There's no waiting period. So when it says sleep in the New Testament, and, and the Old Testament alludes to this as well, and in fact, the, the Greek uh, culture into which Paul is writing believed this. They, they believed in, in the sleeping of souls, in this dreary uh, 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 fog and, and, uh, and mire after death. Paul will talk about it being sleep because for the Christian, that's quite an apt picture. What happens to everybody when you go to sleep? Give it about eight hours. Teenagers, 12 hours. You wake up eventually. Everyone who goes to sleep awakes. And therefore, he looks at the Christian body lying in the catacombs of Rome or lying in the ground of England or, or in a crematorium in Underwood, wherever it is. He says that body is just resting. It's sleeping. Soon it will come awake. That's why he's referring to it as sleep throughout the New Testament. We don't believe in soul sleep. We believe in death, and then the intermediary state is with Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. All of this to say that, for, that, that Paul is encouraging them, the dead in Christ are not unaware of where they're at, and they won't miss the coming of Jesus. The language tells us their souls come with Jesus from heaven, and their bodies rise up out of the ground, crematorium, or any other place, and shoot to be with him in the sky, and their soul and body meet. That will be a sight. Jesus has the souls of all dead Christians with him in heaven. When he comes back, he brings them, he calls, and their bodies rise to join him in the air. So the, the dead in Christ, be encouraged. And maybe this is something that you need encouragement with. Maybe you're unsure of what has happened to your, to your deceased loved ones. Well, no. If they trusted Jesus, now they see Jesus. That's Christ's promise. <clears throat> but then the, the question is, is to uh, be asked, what, what should they think? And, and Paul will say in, in verse 13, back at the beginning, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, so that, why do I want you to know what's happening? so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Does Paul say Christians shouldn't mourn, shouldn't grieve, shouldn't cry? No. Otherwise, he, he broke that. Jesus mourned and wept at the death of Lazarus that he knew was only minutes away from being undone. Christians mourn. We weep. We feel the pain of God's providence in our life as people pass into death. And yet Paul says, you mourn though, not like people who have no future hope. You don't mourn because there's no knowing where they are. And, and, and it's just the more depressing, the more you think about it, 
and you, you, you'll never see them again and there's no hope for you either because this is just a reminder that you'll be dead and gone forever. That's not our mourning. Our weeping, our mourning, our grief is the pain of sin and death, yet with the background ringing of 1 Corinthians 15, ultimately, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? This whole, this whole show of death is going to be undone. What does verse 14 say? Just as Jesus died and rose. Friends, our Savior went where we will soon go, into the grave and then up into heaven, bodily raised in the future. We have hope, though we mourn. That's the application of that. And then the question should be asked, verse 17, and this is where we'll, we'll bring it to a close over the next half hour. <clears throat> you know me. No, verse 17, then, then the question is asked, okay, well, what, about, what if we're living still? What if we're still alive when he comes back? Do we miss out? Here's what happens to the living. Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If you're still alive when Jesus comes back, the timeline is this. You see him. I love the audio Bible. <clears throat> Jesus comes back. I'm not doing a good enough job. Someone's got to have the audio. No, I'm, just, I'm not embarrassing anybody. Uh, Jesus comes back. And you, friends, if it was to be tonight, Jesus comes back and you see him. There will be no secret return of Jesus. He returns and you start seeing graves open in this spark of a moment. Graves open, bodies rise, and you yourself are caught up to be with the Lord. And while those bodies join the, the floating souls, you there are also brought into line behind Jesus Christ. Sounds strange? Absolutely. Can we be dogmatic about exactly what will, will happen in those very moments? No, the Bible is not entirely specific. Will there be archangels and real trumpets? We're not sure. But, but what we know is that our future is bright. We have hope in the future. Wherever we are, we will be with Jesus Christ. I want to point you to this. John 14, chapter 1, uh, John chapter 14 Verses 1 and 3. This is what Jesus said in his final time with the disciples before his death. He said, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told, told you that I was going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. To hear the heart of Christ towards his sinful people still caught on earth, still suffering persecution, affliction, and, and the, the fight against sin, Jesus says, I will be with you by the Holy Spirit while you live on earth. And then, if you're still alive, I will come back. If you die, I'll bring you to me. Why? His heart is always to be with his people. Is there any man, any groom, 
who in his ideal picture for a wedding would have Saturday wedding day, wedding, marriage, party, and then she'll go on a three-month girl's trip and I on a three-month boy's trip and have some time alone. That seems best to conclude the marriage ceremonies. No, they are together, gone away from the rest of the world that they might love each other. The heart of a husband is to be with the one he has just brought into his new home and family. That is the heart of Christ towards you. Do you realize that? Towards, I know your heart as a Christian longs for the day to see him face to face. Have you had the humility to believe the word of God when it says he longs for the day that he has you face to face with him. The result of what he shed his blood for, brought into his presence for his glory. We can see that this is a deep desire of Jesus Christ because later on uh, that night, he prays to his holy father. And as a high priest, he prays these words in John chapter 17. I have put, in, put down the wrong verse number, but I will look for it here. Here we go, 24, verse 24 in John chapter 17. He prays, and it's speaking of all, he's now not only praying for the disciples, he's praying for all those who will believe in the future, that's us. He says, Father, listen to his heart here. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before, uh, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' prayer, I believe, is answered. That he is with you by the Spirit and you will immediately be with him either because he comes back or you depart through the door of death to see him. So the question should be asked now is, as, as we wrap up, <clears throat> where does our eschatology meet this passage? If you're an amillennialist, you, you will hold that, that Jesus is going, this is all future. Jesus is going to come back at the end of the world. One of the very last events to happen is that Jesus will come back have that, that call of the archangel, of the trumpet and of his own voice, and we will, as described before, rise, be with him, and then return to the earth with him to see the judgment of all living and dead, the, the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the unrighteous. Some are cast to hell, the righteous brought with him to the glorious new creation. Postmillennialists also hold this, that this is all future. This is talking about the final coming of Christ, that's when the rapture occurs. We, we are, the word for rapture is, is taken from this passage. It's, it's re, it was in the, the verse, maybe you didn't see it because it was through a different interpretation. It says, uh, verse 17, we who are left will be caught up together. The word there is the same word for arresting by force or seizing. The G, when we talk about rapture, we mean Jesus rips us off the earth to, to himself. That someone is coming to, to slay his bride and he sweeps through on his horse and grabs her out of harm's way, brings him to himself. And, and, and there's another term in the background here which says, um, we will be caught up together with them 
to meet the Lord in the air. Now, now in the Greek background of this, this is where post-millennials and amillennials will say, the word meet there is actually the Greek term for like an official meeting of a dignitary or a king. That as a king is coming towards the city, the, the people of the city would be told, they would start getting ready and send out the people, the receiving party for that king. And they would meet him you know, a few hundred meters away from the city, that they would set up sort of a welcome party, and then they would escort him back on that last leg of the race. So you have a picture of this in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Yet still out, everybody goes and meets him, sings to him, throws down their cloaks, and walk with him that last leg. That's the picture. Jesus appears, calls us to himself by the trumpet, and then we come back to the earth with him immediately. Whereas the premillennialist will believe, usually, that, that Jesus comes back, not at the very, very, very end of time, but towards the end of time. He appears, not visibly, but calls us. We are raptured out of this world, our, our clothes and our boots and our wedding rings left behind, and we go up. Wherever you are, you, you disappear from that place. We go up. Everybody else is left on the earth. The tribulation occurs, and then seven or so years later, Jesus comes back with us in order to judge, uh, set up his kingdom, and at the very end, judge the world. That's, that's where this will land. I hope that's been somewhat instructive, but I want to leave you with this, that wherever, uh, wherever you land on these things, and maybe you have no clue which of those you believe or what you believe, you don't have to fall into one of these. But I want to encourage you with this. As you study the end times, hold fast to the necessities. Prioritize your, your understanding of those essential things we spoke about being closed handed issues. Jesus will come back bodily. He will call us to himself. There will never be such a time as soul sleep or purgatory. We will be with him. He will judge everyone. There will be an eternal hell and an eternal heaven or glory. I want to say also, number two, don't be dogmatic where the Bible is quiet and where church history is mixed. Well, let's not get into that mindset which thinks what everybody else has been confused about, I, my first year of listening to YouTube sermons, have decided. I have brought, I have come to the final conclusion and I will settle this debate once and for all. All other people are fools. Let's avoid that pride. Let's not be dogmatic where the Bible only whispers, let us not shout. Let us know. This is my encouragement. I hope that this has just been an introduction. Please study and read widely. I want you to be informed. I want you to be able to argue against the cultists and the strange views of the end time, heretical views of the end time with Bible. I want you to be able to do that. I want you to be able to inform your doctrine of the future. So study well and deeply. Study widely. Don't just stick to your own school of thought and always challenge your traditions. This is a, a doctrine where people come to with so many assumptions which are traditions. Be willing to challenge everything you were told about this. Be willing to challenge what your pastor, what this guy on YouTube, what, what, what my former church pastor told you. Read scripture, read widely among the Christian community and challenge your own beliefs. Lastly, I want to tell you this, that it ought to be 
a doctrine of personal hope. Maybe you don't believe that the the whole world is going to get better and bright and beautiful. It doesn't matter. As you think about Jesus returning, let your heart be encouraged, as Paul says at the end of this passage. Your view of Jesus coming back must be one that brings you to joy, that, that brings you all enthralled with the glory of that moment. And lastly, be sure, friends, that when Jesus comes back for his people, he comes back for you. There will be many, when Jesus returns, who are judged and thrown into hell, who sat in church pews all their life. Maybe even those who argued the strongest, the best, the most deeply about this very topic. It doesn't matter. Jesus' one condition for you to be his people, one of his children, saved, forgiven, is that you did not know more than others, did not impress other people with your life, but that you, by empty-handed faith in Jesus, trusted his salvation to be yours. Trust his atonement on the cross to be sufficient for your sins. I, I, in, in, one essence, in one sense, I don't care about your past. I care that you trust in Jesus. Where you have been, what you have done to people or had done against you is irrelevant to the call of coming to believe and the promise of salvation. No one will be put to shame who places their trust in Jesus. And Christian, or, or, or you who have just now decided to believe on Christ, know that death is but a doorway. That death is defeated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that we have him in heaven for us, who as he said on earth, is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. I want you to be encouraged I want you to not fear, but I want you to be certain that he who tasted death tasted death for you so that you may taste eternal life now by the Spirit in the gospel and in the future when Jesus comes or you go to him. Repent of sin, live busy for Jesus until he calls you. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I thank you that you have, in your grace and in your mercy, given your life so that sinners can receive it, so that those deserving death can pass into eternal life, can be cleansed and of our sins. We thank you, Jesus, that you went for us into death, but also that you rose for us out of death to show that whether we live in the body or die in the body, we belong to you, we will be with you, and we receive blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace and glory upon glory. God, I ask and and pray that you would give faith to those who do not believe, those who believe that they are just too filthy to be called one of Christ's, that, that they would never be welcomed into heaven. Lord, give them the trust to believe that Jesus can forgive them. To those who who simply look forward into the future and and do not think that if they trusted in Christ, they would ever be able to stay a Christian, that they would surely fall away, that temptation would pull them, the devil would destroy them. 
God, assure them that you are the one who hold us safely and protected in your covenant, that you persevere us. Give them that trust that they may place their faith in you and believe and be saved. And God, for those of us who who trust Christ, who belong to him with an assurance of our heart that the future is glorious, may Lord, you make us busy in your work, knowing that the battle is won, knowing that the kingdom is true, is real, is alive because the king is alive. Give to us that hope and assurance and blessing of knowing this true comfort. And God, to all those who now or in the future, listening to this sermon, have had the, the pain of death in, among their loved ones or among their church or among their friends, would you encourage them with these things, Lord? And may, may the morning remind them of the gospel. And may the, the death remind them of the resurrection to come. And may we all take comfort in your words of Scripture. As we go, may we be obedient. May we glorify you. We thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.